Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, we'll talk about an alternative to biopsies called fine needle aspiration. Obtaining tissue fragments is much more cumbersome as opposed to um, getting cells where we can use uh, simple procedures. Plus, an overview of the changing face of abortion laws. There really was no partisan split on this. You were as likely to find Democrats that were pro-life as you were to find Republicans that were pro-choice. The divisions that we understand today is the Republican Party being the pro-life party and the Democrats being the pro-choice party and an award-winning program that gets more kids immunized. If we educate the families, will that increase their child's vaccination rate? We were able to address each family's individual concern. We'll get our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we take a look at the changing face of abortion laws four decades after the historic Supreme Court decision making it legal in this country. Plus, we'll examine the importance of childhood vaccinations in preventing disease and saving lives and one local effort promoting them. But first, a less invasive way of diagnosing suspicious tumors. Diagnostic techniques have made huge gains over the past few decades, helping physicians more accurately analyze and treat various diseases like cancer. Here to explain one such important technique and its applications is Dr. Kamal Kurana. He's professor of pathology, he's adjunct professor of internal medicine, he's the director of the cytopathology and program director of the cytopathology fellowship program at Upstate Medical University. Welcome Dr. Kurana, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. So let's start with something, with an explanation for our listeners, because most of our listeners are not scientists. Mm -hmm. What exactly do we mean when we use the term cytopathology? What is this field? Cytopathology is actually a specialized branch of pathology where we are trying to make diagnoses by not looking at tissue, but at cells. So that's the main difference, you know. Uh, Basically, we get surgical biopsies most of the time, and pathology involves looking at tissue fragments to make the diagnosis, but cytopathology is different in the sense that we are actually looking at cells and trying to make a diagnosis that would help in management of patients. So the by looking, how is that different, though, in one sense? In other words, a tissue sample is made up of cells, and in this case, you're, you're kind of zeroing in or focusing in more on the cellular nature of the tissue, so to speak. So is there something about, is there more information or a, a particular type of information that you're deriving from looking at, the, at a cellular level? Well, what we are trying to do here is basically focus on the cell morphology. When we are looking at uh, tissue fragments, you know, it's the architecture that helps us make the diagnosis. It's how and, the cells are put together. Right. 
and uh, obtaining tissue fragments is much more cumbersome as opposed to um, getting cells where we can use uh, simple procedures which do not uh, really interfere with the patient um, in terms of the mobility or uh, uh, flexibility you know basically when we are doing cytopathology the cells are collected by easy methods as opposed to um, a surgical surgical procedure invasive which is much more invasive so that's the main difference between the techniques in which the two uh the techniques by which the cells are collected. Yeah, and obviously I want to talk a lot more about the benefits of this whole idea of what you're doing. I'm just curious, and I think we'll talk more as we go further on in terms of how your findings affect treatment, but are you looking more at the genetic makeup then of a particular cell? Or when you say the morphology, it's how they look, it's how they're they're structured, but are you getting more kind of... um, are you drilling down into more data, so to speak, by doing the cyto, the looking at the cellular on the cellular level? No, basically, we are first of all focusing on how to make a diagnosis. Okay, I mean, a patient can go to a physician and uh, can get admitted and get a surgical biopsy, which takes a lot of time, as opposed to um, cytology, where you know you could still go to physician and get a simple procedure done by which these cells are aspirated uh, and without compromising the patient in any way. It's a very minimally invasive procedure. So that's the most important thing in terms of how we collect the cells. Okay, so, so let me get to that now. So you use a technique in doing this kind of collection called fine needle aspiration. Explain what that is, and again, I know you're going to amplify how it's different than the alternative, which has always been a surgical excision of tissue. So tell me about fine needle aspiration. What exactly is it? Fine needle aspiration is a very simple, quick, and inexpensive method of performing a biopsy. Basically, it's almost like getting a shot, you know. So you have the patient come in, you introduce a very fine needle, uh, move it back and forth in the palpable lump where which needs to be investigated. Some suspicious tumor. Right. I mean, obviously, anytime you have a swelling, the first main concern is, is it a tumor or it's something benign that I don't have to worry about it, which might go away by itself. But uh, when we get these patients in the clinics, you know, we do this procedure, we introduce a needle, and uh, it takes about 30 seconds to get the cells, and uh, we can smear them on the slides and stain them right there and then. And we have a microscope right by us, uh, and we can look through it and can tell the patient at that time, most of the time, we can tell with accuracy as to what we are dealing with, whether it's a malignant process or it's a benign process. In cases where we are not certain, we investigate it further in, for, in our lab and uh, do some ancillary tests to be, be more definitive. Is it ever necessary 
after you've done a fine needle aspiration and there's, it's equivocal or there are questions, is it ever necessary to do a surgical biopsy following that, do you find? Yes, if it doesn't work. Sometimes, you know, we might have problems in getting the sample because we are dealing with a needle and there is a question of uh, how accurately the mass was sampled. But if we get diagnostic cells, we are 100% certain. So if we are not able to get the sample well, then there's always a question, and we may refer the patient to the second step, which would be a surgical biopsy. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with cytopathologist Dr. Kamal Kurana. We're talking about fine needle aspiration and cytopathology. So give us a picture of how this takes place. There's a suspicious tumor or growth. Um, you're, you're called in to the case, and right then, in a, an office of some kind, you can pr perform this procedure at the bedside, so to speak? That's right. And, a, a, how long does it take? You said 30 seconds? That's right. Is the patient anesthetized in any way? Is there pain involved in this procedure? Most of the time, we get referrals for these kind of patients. You know, these are patients seen in medicine clinic or in any kind of clinic, head and neck clinic, ENT, surgeons. And uh, what really happens is when anybody observes, the physician observes a lump anywhere in the body, uh, they can refer the patient to us. We do run clinics at Upstate on two days, Wednesdays and Thursdays. And uh, once we get the referral, then we have the patient come into our clinic. We do a short examination and um, examine the lump, whether we can easily feel it. And then we explain to the patient what we are actually going to do, which is basically introducing a needle, just like I said, you know, it's almost like getting a shot. And we do apply anesthetic spray, which is topical kind of, topical kind of uh, anesthetic. And it, what it does is it really freezes the skin overlying the lump and uh, alleviates the pain to some extent. You know, I wouldn't say that it is completely discomfort-free. There is going to be some discomfort associated with it. You know, every time you get a shot, you know, there's some discomfort, you know. But it takes about 15 to 20 seconds to get the cells out. And then rest of the time is involved in actually preparing the slides and uh, staining them and looking them uh, under the microscope. So what types of disease entities or, um, I mean, are you, are you limited in any way? I mean, you made it sound like anytime there's a suspicious tumor slash lump, you, will, you can use this technique. So it's pretty much universally uh, applicable. Is that correct? That's right. And, and basically, it's the, it's the pathologists or the cytopathologists that actually take care of this procedure. Well, the procedure can be performed by regular clinicians too, but the advantage of having an interventional cytopathologist doing it is that you can assess the sample there and then and assure the patient that you have enough material and, you know, you can actually make a preliminary diagnosis. What happens is sometimes these procedures are done in the clinic by other clinicians. They will go in sample it a couple of times and send the material, but they might have missed the lesion and they may not be diagnostic cells. But when the pathologist is doing it, we are doing an adequacy evaluation there and then 
to ensure that we have adequate material to make a diagnosis. And basically, the advantages besides the idea of obviously not having to do a surgical procedure are many because I think you said that, that um, you can find out the, the preliminary results are available in very short order uh, within 24 to 48 hours, That's am I correct? Right. And obviously that has to alleviate a lot of the patient's anxiety. That's right. And, you know, it doesn't require any hospital admission, which you would require for surgical biopsies. You have to go through general anesthesia sometimes. And uh, this is a basical procedure where basically you could walk in, you know, and sometimes we get calls from the clinicians and they say, can you take the patient right now? And we can accommodate those kind of calls depending on our schedule. You know, if it is really an urgency, we would definitely do the procedure. That's really a tremendous breakthrough when I think about it in terms of diagnosis, to be able to do it so rapidly with very little pain to the patient and they can resume their normal activities immediately following. That's right. So it's it's really quite a significant improvement. Um, are there ever circumstances, what's the reliability, I guess, is my question, and uh, do you ever come up with either a false positive, false negative in your studying? You know, we, we have to make a clinical correlation and what the differential diagnosis in that patient is who presents with a lump or bump. When we get malignant cells, there is no question that we will make an accurate diagnosis. You can tell those right. under the microscope Yes, we can tell unquestionably that these are malignant cells. I mean, there are times when there may be a suspicion, but... We do not see those kind of cells. Those are the kind of lumps which need to be investigated further with like a surgical biopsy. But if the clinician is thinking about an infectious process and we find evidence of that, then we are very sure that, you know, we nailed the diagnosis. Or if they're thinking about a malignancy and we were able to get those malignant cells, then we are quite certain that we got the diagnosis. Another question that comes to mind for me is since the, the, the new kind of age of more personalized cancer treatments or the whole idea of targeted cancer therapies, is the Im information that you're kind of accruing or gathering the, basically the, on the cellular level, does that help shape the treatment protocols that that might follow if in fact it was a malignancy? That's absolutely true that, you know, we are actually looking into that and we are actually doing a lot of procedures where we do acquire material for uh, targeted therapy or next genome sequencing. And this is going to be the way to go from now on because, you know, this is like doing more with less. I mean, fine needle aspiration basically does more with less. So you can do multiple things, get the diagnosis, collect more material for molecular studies, for next for future sequencing, mm -hmm. and for targeted therapy. If you need some material, you know, yes, we can. This is the way to go. So, so this is the horizon. This is what you're beginning to embark on, and it really could have very significant ramifications. Absolutely. 
fascinating stuff and I want to thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. It is incredible breakthrough from what I can see in terms of our ability to diagnose these kinds of problems or suspicious lumps and bumps as you said. Thank you so very much. My guest has been Dr. Kamal Kurana, Professor of Pathology. He's also a, um, in, uh, an adjunct professor of internal medicine and the Director of Cytopathology and the Program Director of the Cytopathology Fellowship Program at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen and this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. face of abortion laws. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. One thorny issue remains at the forefront of much of our political wrangling during this and every other political debate in the last four decades. That's abortion. And that's ever since Roe v. Wade was decided by the Supreme Court and a woman's right to choose became the law of the land. Well, here with an historical perspective on how this works and how the laws may be changing is Jonathan Parent. He's an assistant professor of political science at Lemoyne College in Syracuse. Welcome, Dr. Parent. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to start by trying to gain some historical perspective on abortion. It was always my thought that abortion had always been illegal until Roe v. Wade, but in fact, when did abortion actually become illegal, and what were the motivations behind those early abortion laws? Right, so abortion wasn't illegal, actually, in any of the 13 colonies uh, prior to the Revolution, and then following the Revolution, um, the early Republic, again, there was no restrictions on abortion in any of the states. Uh, it wasn't until about the 19, or rather 1820s that uh, states started to pass laws that actually outlawed abortion, and in most cases, they would outlaw what at the time were known as patent medicines, and these were basically tonics or, or sort of other concoctions that women would take in order to sort of bring about an abortion. And so the reasoning behind the restrictions on these was was actually a concern over the dangers of these, these patent medicines. They, uh, more often than not, would sort of negatively affect the woman as much as the sort of fetus. Uh, you know, we were talking a 50% sort of success rate uh, kind of thing. So they, they were quite dangerous. Uh, and so early abortion restrictions were actually meant to restrict that. Uh, they had little to do with what we would understand today as sort of protection of a fetus. Uh, so New York, for example, uh, passed a law in 1828 that was one of the strictest in the country at the time. Uh, and by the time you get to about the 1940s, all of the states had, had uh, passed restrictions on abortion. So they were mostly to protect women, as you yeah, say. Yeah, largely, yeah. And it, it really wasn't about the right uh, the right of the fetus. No, there was really no conception of, of any, anything we would understand as the right of the fetus. The only sort of meaningful point that, that, that there was sort of any, any discussion of that at all would have been uh, post-quickening, um, post as they would call it, which would mean when the woman was able to perceive movement of the fetus in the, in the womb. Uh, prior to that, there wasn't really considered to be anything, you know, as it were, so. Very interesting. So when did all this start to change? Right, so these laws stayed on the books basically up until the mid-1960s, early 1970s, 
Uh, a couple of states initially sort of loosened their abortion laws. Uh, Colorado in 1967 was actually the first state to pass a relatively broad uh, sort of abortion liberalization law. Uh, then you would have a few other states, um, Alaska, Hawaii, um, and North Carolina, surprisingly, uh, were some of the first states to loosen their abortion laws. A lot of times what they would do, though, is simply allow for abortions in cases of sort of rape and incest and, and uh, <clears throat> uh, the life of the mother. Uh, so, yeah, New York was actually one of the first states to pass a comprehensive repeal law in 1970. So exactly what happened, though, around the time, it was the 60s and 70s, what were the political or social contexts for all those changes that took place, you know, building up to Roe v. Wade? Right, well, there was a number of things. One was this sort of idea of sort of legalizing, and, I, and by legalizing I don't mean sort of not making illegal, but rather... Uh, the understanding abortion as a legal question, right? Something that, you know, was actually protected by the Constitution. This yeah. was a relatively new phenomenon. At the time, it had been very much a, a sort of policy slash health issue. Uh, the idea of constitutionalizing the question sort of came about in sort of the late 1950s initially. There were uh, there was a group called the American Law Institute which had proposed uh, a model penal code, and they had recommended that abortion be at least liberalized, abortion laws be liberalized, if not outright repealed. Uh, and the AMA, the American Medical Association, also sort of recommended uh, the liberalization of abortion laws in the 1960s. And so you get a number of sort of new understandings of abortion, um, one of them being this constitutionalization, the idea that it was protected. The right to privacy, for Exactly, one. yeah, which we first see in 1965 in a case called Griswold v. Connecticut. Uh, and then that sort of gets expanded out to include what uh, was originally about contraception, and then it ends up being sort of uh, broad to include abortion, and ultimately in Roe v. Wade. Uh, but yeah, it had a lot to do with the the women's rights movement, right, which was sort of a newish phenomenon, third third wave feminism in any case. Uh, in the 1960s, that that was a big uh, that was a big sort of motivating factor, uh, and there was also an increasing understanding of the dangers of of outline abortion, the idea of these sort of back alley abortions, exactly. the idea that women dying at the hands of untrained people, and it, yeah, definitely. And so, as a matter of fact, if you read some of the some of the literature from that, the the late 60s, early 70s, that was one of the major concerns of the legislators at the time who were who were debating this in the state legislatures was this idea that women were dying in large numbers because of unsafe abortion and and it was particularly there was even a, a sort of race issue to it too in the sense race and class issue in the sense Poor that women. it was well understood that that women of means were able to obtain abortions almost at will uh, whereas poorer women really weren't. These are the women that were really suffering because of the abortion restrictions. They were the ones that were forced to go to these back alley dangerous abortion mills that uh, you know would end up putting their lives at risk. Precisely, yeah. So basically, what happened with Roe v. Wade? Take us back to 1973 and the Supreme Court decision. What tipped the balance? I'm not sure anything particularly tipped the balance. I mean, it, so it was a 7-2 decision with Justice Blackman. 7-2. 7-2, yeah. yeah uh, with Justice Blackman writing the majority opinion. And it's basically an extension of this right to privacy that had sort of come about, you know, eight years earlier. Uh, and essentially what Roe said, Roe, Roe v. Wade, you know, a lot of people sort of understand it as this blanket legalization of abortion, and it really wasn't. Uh, what Roe v. Wade said essentially is that there are three sort of trimesters, and each of those trimesters um, allows for different types of restrictions, right? So in the first trimester, uh, a state isn't allowed to restrict abortion at all. 
in the second trimester, a state can impose some restrictions on abortion, but but not others. Uh, and then in the third trimester, they're they're allowed to sort of ban the practice outright. Um, so this is sort of an interplay between the idea of viability, right, which is which was a big part of the decision as well. But this this sort of trimester framework that that Blackman and the court comes up with is basically a, a compromise. It's sort of a, a way of saying, listen, we're we're going to allow some restrictions at certain instances, but we're not going to allow these blanket sort of bans as they existed in in forty four states at the time. But so. that was really groundbreaking. I mean, that was really fundamentally groundbreaking. Absolutely, yeah, it definitely was because yeah. it made it basically the law of the land as opposed to individual states right and it was unusual too in the sense that typically the court will wait until more states have sort of played around with this issue and either you know uh, passed a liberalization law or or something like that even to looking at the same-sex marriage cases now you know there were a number of states that legalized it before the supreme court stepped in and and nationalized it whereas that wasn't the case with with roe so roe is a little unusual in the sense that the vast majority of states maintain bans on abortion when they when they issued that ruling if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with political science professor Dr. Jonathan Parent, and we're talking about the evolution of abortion laws and where they are today. Well, how have the religious and partisan views of abortion changed over the last 50 years? Right. So when this issue first came about, um, there really was no partisan split on this. You were as likely to find Democrats that were pro-life as you were to find Republicans that were pro-choice. Uh, the divisions that we understand today is the Republican Party being the pro-life party and the Democrats being the pro-choice party really wasn't the case back sort of when this issue first started to get on the agenda of lawmakers. Um, in matter of fact, if you take if you look at polls at the time in the early 1970s, uh, self-identified Republicans uh, and self-identified Democrats, there was very little difference in their views on abortion. You had large segments of pro-life and pro-choice constituencies in both parties. Um, and then this, this begins to change sort of in the 80s and 90s. Um, the same goes for religions. Uh, the only sort of major Christian denomination in in the country that sort of consistently opposed abortion long before the 1960s was actually the Catholic Church. Uh, Protestant denominations were actually very much split on the issue and, and often took sort of a middle road um, there's sort of a famous uh, uh, position statement from the Southern Baptist Convention that essentially says, you know, we understand this is a controversial issue. We think that abortion should be available under certain circumstances and, and these sorts of things, uh, which is, you know, really flies in the face of what we understand uh, the positions of a lot of Protestant, at least uh, conservative Protestant churches today. So where do you think we're at today in terms of the opinion? I mean, do you think it's still, it's that polarized in terms of, very strong, you know, very, very, the right wing on the right and the left wing on the left. I mean, what do you think is happening now? Actually, as far as public opinion goes on the issue, it's it's been one of the most durable divisions that we've seen almost ever, at least in the last 40 years. Since this became an issue, the polls have actually moved surprisingly little. There, there, there's almost the same amount of sort of people identifying as pro-life today as there was 30, 40, 50 years ago, um, and pro-choice as well. So th- the polls really haven't moved. There's been possibly a slight increase in the number of people of Americans who identify uh, as pro-choice, but but really it's remained remarkably stable. And this is unusual. Most issues sort of go back and forth a lot, but abortion has really not changed all that much at all in terms of public opinion. What's interesting, though, is there have been changes in American society. I mean, you have fewer church-going people, I think, some studies suggest that there are fewer people uh, overtly affiliated with some religious traditions and possibly going to church and or synagogue less frequently. And um, I was always, I'm curious to 
whether the new the new pope has played any role at all. I mean, obviously he wouldn't condone abortion per se, but his general stance on a lot of social issues seem a little bit more um, open-minded. Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, Francis certainly made an effort to de-emphasize, you know, a lot of the social issues, and he's he's more he's played up sort of the. Uh, more economic sort of social justice issues right. concerns. Poverty, um, poverty, lack of opportunity. Exactly, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, as far as the Catholic Church, Catholics in sort of writ large, the the sort of lay Catholics, um, they really have, in the last 20, 30 years, been very much a mirror of the American population in terms of their their views of, of abortion. So the position the church has taken and the position that the sort of laity has taken uh, have been very different. Uh, your average sort of Catholic, you know, American doesn't really view abortion any differently than the general public. They're not more likely to be pro, pro-life pro than, than the general public. In some cases, actually, Catholics tend to be somewhat more pro-choice, uh, particularly in certain Protestant denominations. So the church certainly hasn't changed their position. That's, that's, that's true. Um, and I don't anticipate they will anytime soon. But realistically, that hasn't made much of a difference in terms of the opinions of Catholics themselves. You know, I'm curious about, I mean, there's always been um, a concern, and especially of late in, in our current political debate, about the role of the Supreme Court. And this is going back to this whole notion of, the, should the Supreme Court be a strict interpreter of the Constitution, or is there a role for making policy, whether it's social policy? And obviously, they always throw Roe v. Wade up as an example of that they're making law, making policy where there was one, there, there was none before, so to speak. What's your experience with that? I mean, what do you think has been happening here in terms of the Supreme Court? Do you think we're moving in the right direction? What's your What's your opinion on this? on this debate about sort of strict constructionism. Well, you know, I mean, I think that my own position is that strict constructionism as a, as a, as a, as a legal idea is really not something that's possible. I think it's really a smokescreen for what's actually a conservative interpretation. Reactionary. Of, exactly. Of, of the constitution. I don't think that, and if you look at decisions like Sins United or things like that, you know, there's, it's tough to interpret those as strict constructionist decisions. And nevertheless, you have justices who identify as strict constructionists supporting, you know, it. supporting that type of opinion. So really, I don't actually buy this idea of strict constructionism. I think it's it's conservative judiciary, it's conservative jurisprudence sort of dressed up as something that sounds better than So that. In, in other words, just uh, reinterpret what you're saying or get what you're saying. You're kind of saying that of, of necessity, there is some interpretation that takes place. Of course. Across the board, and it depends on how the court is weighted, what direction it goes. Absolutely. I mean, the, the court is a political and politi- body. And they're politically appointed. And they're so. politically appointed, and they have political views, and that's, you know, there's no sort of way around that. And the Constitution is simply a document that doesn't self-interpret. In the very little time we have left, what's being done to undermine the abortion laws currently that are on the books? statewide abortion laws that restrict access or no yeah what new laws are they trying to put in place to try to restrict access right so the biggest sort of thing that's been happening recently is what's called a target restriction of abortion procedure which is these sort of um uh, these sort of um clinics clinics right so uh, admitting privileges and things like that putting more requirements right texas has a you know is sort of the, the the example of this and basically forcing abortion clinics to close because they don't meet these certain standards, which most people understand to actually not be necessary and are really sort of naked attempts to simply close abortion clinics and limit women's access. So the fight isn't over, so to speak. Not not by a long shot, no. no this will I... be an issue for, for, as far as I can see, the foreseeable future. <laughs>
I appreciate your coming in and giving us this very interesting historical perspective. My guest has been Dr. Jonathan Parent. He's Assistant Professor of Political Science at Lemoyne College in Syracuse. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's Checkup from the Neck Up, A Secret to Motivation for Life Change, or the Your Name Here Book Club. Well, folks, of course, you know Oprah's Book Club, for which Oprah nominates life-changing books that then sell millions of copies. You may not know that I'm in the same biz as Oprah, life change. The only difference is I'm nominating you to write your own life-changing book. How? Well, I'll tell you. But first, I want to tell you a tiny story about my recent doctor visit. I went to the doctor the other day, and the nurse does the usual blood pressure and heart rate, and I ask what my heart rate is, and she says, 43. And I am overjoyed. 43. Joy, 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 joy. Not to brag, but heart rates average 75 beats a minute, and as was mine 20 years ago. Before I started walking and then fast walking and then jogging and then running and biking and lifting and stretching, and now 43. What got me to start doing all that? even though it wasn't necessarily easy. In fact, working out is working out. Well, I had back pain, and I wanted to get rid of it. And walking is one of the best ways to reduce back pain. Now, what motivated me to keep on keeping on? Well, after the back pain went away, the sheer joy of feeling fitter and the joy of progress. We human beings like to see ourselves moving to goals we want no matter what the goal, and that progress gives us pure joy. But it works best if you can measure and notice your progress, like seeing yourself able to walk farther, or your speed get faster and then faster again on the treadmill or bicycle, or lifting more weight. And here's where your book comes in. Jotting down in a little book what you do toward your goal every day be it walking once around the block and the next week once in a bit more, or lifting five pounds this week and six the next, or watching your heart rate drop from one month to the next as you get fitter and fitter, or saving one dollar this week and a second the next. Putting it in your book makes you notice it, and noticing progress is Joy, 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 enough joy to put up with the work we have to do to make our life better. So get going, do the do, write your book, and enjoy making whatever change you want to make. Next up, 
the importance of childhood vaccinations in preventing disease and saving lives. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, Linda Cohen along with you. Childhood vaccinations have clearly saved lives both here and throughout the world, protecting children from serious and life-threatening diseases. But while overall vaccination rates have been high in this country, there remain some groups for which this is not the case. And here to tell us more about this and what can be done about it are Dr. Joseph Domakowski, professor of pediatrics as well as of microbiology and immunology at Upstate Medical University, and Dr. Monica Surya-Devra, assistant professor of pediatrics at Upstate Medical University. Both physicians, by the way, have been honored by the Salvation Army's highest civic honor, the Others Award, for showing extraordinary spirit of service to their community in their vaccination outreach efforts. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming in. Um, Dr. Domikowski, there are groups of kids who are under-vaccinated in in this country. Tell us who they are. Uh, Well, there are several different groups. We have uh, groups of um, culturally uh, sort of resistant who, who, who basically refuse to have their kids vaccinated on religious grounds? Religious or cultural grounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And what do, what do we do about that? What, what do you think is causing this besides, if it's a belief system, I understand, but there have been of late kind of trends of parents who feel like there's something in the vaccine that could be hazardous to their kids. So I see those as an even separate group. I see those as uh, philosophical sort of exemptors. Uh, people that, for whatever reason, have decided that the vaccines are either safe or unnecessary for their kids. And when I talk to those families, they have a lot of different reasons that they tell me. And, but, I mean, isn't there a problem with this in terms of the whole herd immunity concept? If, in, in other words, if a lot of people opt out of vaccinating their children for whatever grounds, doesn't it affect all of us? Well, we've proven that it affects all of us because we've experienced very recent outbreaks of vaccine-preventable infections. Why do you think some of these people, I mean, I know that there's been this issue of autism, but I mean, I think it's been postulated that perhaps people, parents have not experienced, that generation has not experienced the devastation that some of these really serious diseases like um, polio, for example, could could cause. Uh, Agreed. Um, I think not too long ago, we at least had the help of the grandparents that could remind the new parents uh, about what these infections really were. And, you know, we've gotten so far away from any of these uh, vaccine-preventable diseases, at least as major uh, um, problems, public health problems, that even grandparents now, new grandparents, don't remember what those were, so they can't help educate their kids. So as providers, it's our duty to remind people about what those infections can do. And are you having any success with convincing people? Well, it depends on the rationale that the parents are giving us for not vaccinating. If they need information and education, we can get them to vaccinate their kids every time. But if they give us sort of philosophical reasons that we can't understand and we don't share that same philosophy, those are the the more uh, resistant families. So it continues. It's something that's really hard hard to combat. How about HPV? I know you were on uh, the show not too long ago. We were talking about the new recommendation for boys as well as girls to be vaccinated for 
human papillomavirus and the potential for the, the diseases it can cause? Right. When the, when the HPV vaccines were first approved back in 2006, we were only vaccinating females. Um, but in 2011, the vaccine recommendation was expanded to include boys and young men. And we still see a discrepancy between the percentage of young uh, females and young uh, boys, young males, that are vaccinated. And what's the potential problem with that, uh, with under-vaccinating that population? Well, again, this is a transmittable virus, and that transmittable virus can infect both boys and girls, and once they have, uh, once they have experienced behavior that allows transmission, they can spread that virus. That HPV virus, as we talked about last time, is a cancer-causing infection. I think that's the key, that it really can cause cancer, and this is, prevent this is one way to really prevent it in advance. Dr. Sudhavara, there, there are also ki poor kids are not getting vaccinated. Right. The kids who don't have money um, or access to resources aren't getting vaccinated. Right. And there are two separate reasons why that may be the case. One is access to vaccine. A lot of families have trouble finding transportation to get to their doctor's office um, or can't take time off from work. And those kids aren't even able to access the vaccine. And there's another group where the family isn't educated enough or doesn't know enough about the vaccines um, and either doesn't know that the vaccine is recommended for their child or is concerned that there are safety issues with the vaccine. And this clearly just adds to that whole concern for the fact that all of those kids, for whatever the reason, are also not getting their full vaccinations. Correct. And also, does that affect or potentially affect our herd immunity, so to speak, or the rest of us? Correct. You have a whole community of children who aren't getting vaccinated either for access reasons or for uh, education reasons. Um, decreasing herd immunity in the community. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen here with Drs. Domakowski and Surya Devera. And uh, we are talking about the need to improve immunization rates in some children in this country. So as you said, we're, these kids who are impoverished are not getting vaccinated properly. Um, you recently published a study on that. Tell us about it. Yes. So what we found looking in previous studies is that the two main reasons why uh, impoverished children aren't getting vaccinated is lack of access to vaccine and lack of education about vaccine. So we uh, wanted to develop a program to improve both access and education to vaccine. So what did you do? So we met uh, families at the Salvation Army who are accessing this community-based organization for non-medical reasons. They were registering for a gift distribution program for their families, and we thought that'd be a great way to access a large number of families with impoverished children. That's very and clever, actually. When you say we did it, tell we, us a little bit more about your team. Being the study team, which involved two pediatric infectious disease specialists and a health educator and um, multiple multiple medical students who helped administer vaccines. Okay, so after you contacted Salvation Army in this case, what did you do? We met, uh, we attended the uh, gift distribution registration. It was a two-week period, happened at different sites around uh, Syracuse, and we talked to families individually. We met each family <coughs> individually. We asked them questions regarding their understanding of routine pediatric vaccines, what their beliefs of the safety and efficacy were of the vaccines, whether they themselves got vaccinated, um, what they thought of each individual vaccine, including flu vaccine. And then after we collected this information, we accessed their child's uh, immunization records in the computer to determine whether their child was vaccine complete or vaccine delayed based upon recent recommendations. So your goal was really to Im improve the vaccination rates, but you, what was the study? In other words, what were you attempting to study? So our study was if we educate the families 
will that increase their child's vaccination rate? So after we collected our survey information and compared that with the immunization records, we were able to address each family's individual concern regarding vaccine, educate them as to what vaccine the child was due for and how to go about getting those child vaccinations. Now we mentioned earlier the other populations who are um, not getting vaccinated for other reasons. Did you find some of the same objections when you were interviewing these lower income families? There were a few families who um, had some philosophical exemptions. Um, however, the majority of the families uh, were able to, to be educated and once they understood the reasons for the uh, vaccine recommendations, they were more likely to have their child vaccinated. So basically your, your point of access or your contact point was through the Salvation Army gift program. Correct. And then you identified the families you engaged in some educational programming. You found out which of their, those children, their children, were not being adequately vaccinated, and then what? And then we offered on-site influenza vaccine and pneumococcal vaccine to those eligible. Uh, the pneumococcal vaccine was for the children who were less than six, and the influenza vaccine was for any child as well as any family member to show that we really believed in influenza, pneumococcal vaccine in particular. Yeah, why those two? It was in the middle of influenza season, so it was a perfect time to offer vaccine to a community who otherwise would have a harder time accessing vaccine. And uh, pneumococcal vaccine also has been uh, shown to have uh, reduced um, uptake in this particular population. So, so we they were also not getting that kind of vaccine. Much, and is that also crucial in terms of correct. preventing as pneumococcus is one of the most is the most common bacterial uh, cause of pneumonia, ear infections, sinus infections. So in a sense, what what did you find? So what we found was prior to our educational intervention, only 28% of the children were completely vaccinated. In other words, they'd had their full range full, of childhood vaccinations. everything that the ACIP recommended, they had completed. ACIP. And, yep. The American Academy? No. It's the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Oh, okay. That's the group that puts out the recommendations for okay. the vaccine. Yes, and? And the reason why it was only 28% who were vaccine complete was because of the lack of influenza vaccine. Um, when you took out influenza vaccine, 70% of the children had completed all the other vaccines. So what that showed us is that um, the reason why a lot of children are vaccine delayed is because they're not getting their influenza vaccine. So that seems to be the culprit more exactly. than anything. It's interesting because now it's being offered so um, you know widely at supermarkets and um, drugstores as well as doctors' offices. Do you think that's is making a difference or will make a difference? When you uh, go to supermarkets and drug offices and non-medical practices, those are mostly for adults. So it's a harder to find places for children to get vaccinated. You have to schedule an appointment at the doctor's office. If you have multiple children in your family, they may make you come on to separate days. Um, so I found that access to flu vaccine for the children was one big reason why kids didn't get vaccinated. The second reason was because a lot of families are concerned that if children are getting the flu vaccine, we're giving them the flu and that is just going to make them sick. That was the most common reason for parents to decline flu vaccine. So that was another issue of education. Correct. And so as we educated the families, they became more willing to get their children to receive the flu vaccine. So in summary, what did you find? We found that um, 
providing vaccine access for the families at a place where they're already accessing other services in combination with individual education to um, help them understand more about vaccine safety and efficacy was effective in increasing immunization rates in this wow. community, particularly with the flu vaccine. So basically education and access Correct. made the difference with that population. Dr. Demikowski, how do you see the, that factor, I mean those two factors perhaps influencing, affecting you know, other parts, first of all, how does that compare to other parts of the country? Well, well first of all, you know, our, our observation here impressed us so much that we decided to continue to do this uh, each year. Uh, so the collaboration's gonna... fantastic, so we're going to continue this uh, as we go forward. Every with the year. Salvation Army or with other not-for-profit? Uh, with uh, the Salvation Army, services. because they are uh, among the largest, at least for um, accessing the children. In, in Here our, in Central in our New York, community. yeah, and and I I would um, I would hope that after reading our pediatrics um, manuscript, our, our published research, that and that's other in the, areas what of the journal, country. What, what journal could we find that in? It's in pediatrics in August of 2013. It okay, was published just, yes. just last month. And you were hoping that after people read it? Yeah, we're hoping that as other people that are interested in vaccine delivery and um, under um, utilization of vaccines across in the country, underserved populations, that yeah. they can use this model and either expand it with the Salvation Army or other community-based organizations to allow better delivery of some of these vaccines. So basically what you're saying is if we can partner with organizations throughout the country, these kinds of organizations, that we might be able to really um, reduce or improve the level of vaccination of children in this country on the whole. I mean, that's what you're seeing. This is a model that you could use in that it, regard. It won't solve the whole problem, but it's one of the steps toward a solution. Very, very good. Well, I want to thank you so much. This has been very, very interesting information, very wonderful research, and it's led to some uh, further uh, program that you're going to offer to our community where everyone will benefit, and hopefully, maybe even throughout the country, people will pick up on this idea. My guests have been Dr. Joseph Domikowski, Professor of Pediatrics, as well as Microbiology and Immunology, and Dr. Monica Surya Devra, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. A poem can appear to be so simple on the page, yet it can contain layers of meaning and a range of emotions. Listen to the story poet Laura Glenn, a writer from Ithaca, New York, weaves in her poem, Shred. She's describing an adult daughter helping her aging father destroy his patient files as he and his wife prepare to move. Shred. Dad hands me a confidential paper. Together, we turn bipolar disorders into a snow of confetti. It blows onto the garden of rug. We switch blades. I destroy suicidal impulses, cut self-destructive tendencies to ribbons, blithely make fortunes you could tuck into cookies from obsessions and compulsions, crank spaghetti out of eating disorders, toss word salads in the garbage. Our progress slowed by his cloudy eyes lingering on each page before he hands it to me to destroy blindly. 
My father has always been excellent about confidentiality. I never quite grasped what he did for a living until I was sent to one. So actually, I have no idea what we're shredding, all the forbidden subjects. I could snatch a few strands, stuff them in my pocket later, paste them together randomly like a Dadaist poet. Maybe he knows what I'm thinking. Above the clamor, he jokes that he could shred me. I tell my Dada, who loves puns, I could be a cut-up. Then it's back to business. I want him to know he can trust me. I shred another paper, helping my parents clear out the old house they're too old to manage. While I'm with my father in his office, tearing life stories to shreds, my mother's in the bedroom, shedding reams of tears. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we discover a low-tech way to fight the mosquitoes spreading Zika and dengue, plus what you need to know about sleep disorders, and a look at the current generation of drugs used to treat psychosis today. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.